a, a pod of striped bass had pinned a pod of, of menhaden into the into this creek mouth in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. So it, it is like, this is something you'd see out in the middle of the ocean, and now this is like, you know, this isn't Greenpoint, this isn't Brooklyn, and you're watching, you know, hundreds of striped bass feed on these menhaden, they're called pe- these peanut bunker, just, you know, and it's just like, that's their place, you know, this is, this is, this is their pattern. This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. Welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm Billy Brown, and I'm with... Tony Crowsdale. And with... Julie Ulrich. Um, I am Director of Urban Conservation for the Nature Conservancy in Philadelphia. All right, we'll hear more about that in a little bit. But first, we realized, soon after we posted Episode 7, that the raccoons aren't actually Nazi raccoons. It's one of these stories that was, like, so good we didn't want it to not be true, but it turns out the raccoons were released to establish them as a fur species, a species to be trapped for fur before the Nazi regime. Um, so of all the things we can blame the Nazis for, the introduction of raccoons into Germany, we can't blame them for. But raccoons have been introduced into Germany, um, into Japan also, uh, and we will, we, will, we will sort of apologize to the raccoons by honoring them with this week's synanthropic organism. Synanthropic organism. When we, we introduced the idea of, of the synanthropic organism of the episode, I'll, I'll say what that is real quick for people who haven't heard that episode. I think it was episode three, but the idea of it is synanthropic, sin with anthropics or, anth- you know, with, with humans. So these are animals or plants or I guess other organisms that make our homes their homes too. Uh, and so you can think of classic things like pests or things like, I'll get another catchphrase in, like the unholy trio. Unholy trio. Uh, the, the pigeons, or a.k.a. rock doves, uh, starlings and house sparrows. And so raccoons, even though we think of them as sort of native wildlife in the, in, on this continent, in the States, especially around Philadelphia, they don't seem to see much distinction themselves between you know, the deep woods of the mountains or the Poconos or something and West Philly. Um, or, or South Philly. Or South Philly, exactly. Uh, I've seen some very well-fed raccoons walking around the sidewalks of West Philly. You know, almost anywhere you got people, you can have raccoons. They get brought up in discussions of subsidized predators so that they eat so much of our trash um, and eat so much, let's say, cat food that people put out or fruit from our gardens, so that their population levels are no longer connected with the population levels of native animals that they prey on, so that they can sort of over-exploit those native animals. And the example coming from the herping world that we think of is like turtle eggs, um, so that you might have so many raccoons, an excessive number of raccoons, so that more turtle eggs or more turtle nests get raided than otherwise would be if the raccoons were not being subsidized by people. Um, and then you got cases like other countries, like Germany, where they were introduced intentionally and they are doing just fabulously and considered to be unstoppable at this point. We need to be sensitive to our friends in the neotropics. 
Yes, we do. Because uh, we keep saying raccoons, but we're specifically referring to the northern raccoons. We are not referring to crab-eating raccoons. Exactly. Which apparently don't do as well around cities as our northern raccoon. And is there is there a third or is it just a two? See, this is the thing. Is with, I'm hoping eventually I know we're a successful podcast when we get corrected all the time. Yeah. That's apparently what the majority of comments are on, on Surely we're getting something wrong. So if we are getting something wrong, or if you want to tell us about something we're getting right, or anything else at all, write us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com, or drop us a comment on iTunes and Stitcher, hit us up on Twitter with herbwildlifecast, or hit us up on our Facebook page. Let us know how we're doing. When my father was the president of the Friends of the Penny Pack, we had the park line, so people would call... You know, and like, just, you know, leave messages or, or trying to get a hold of somebody from Friends of Penny Pack or something. And someone left a message saying that they saw a kangaroo in the park. A kangaroo. <laughs> I'm sort of visualizing a kangaroo with a mask on and like a bushy tail. I knew, I knew it. There is a third raccoon. What? The Cozumel raccoon. In the, One island and they yeah, got their own raccoon? Yeah. All right. Well, there you There's go. It's also called the pygmy raccoon. So, now, what we're going to do, before we get into the more serious stuff, I wanted to hearken back to another synanthropic organism and listen to a piece where Magnolia, my daughter, and I went out and messed with some squirrels in a very nice way. So, Magnolia and I were just squirrel fishing. Magnolia, what happened? What did the squirrel do? It scratched and finally and, and it, and it, and it, and it yeah, it took the peanut and it ate it off, and so the squirrel got the peanut and the peanut, and so the squirrel won. Squirrel. Does the squirrel see the nut? Okay, whoa, we have to cast it back out again, all right? Because it's too close to us. It's too close to us. All right, we have to let it out. Right. It's not for you. It's not for the pigeon? Right here for the squirrel. Because they're pretty damn smart, don't get at all phased by a peanut that's magically pulling away from them. They really quickly figure out that there's a line attached and that you are pulling on it because they make eye contact with you while you're doing this. And they I always would do it just for just so I can make eye contact with squirrels. Usually, when I think of the Nature Conservancy, 
I think of a great organization working to save what I might call pristine habitats or pristine places way out there, you know, not necessarily in cities. And I think of their work. Another good article I did where I was lucky enough to go along with a Nature Conservancy researcher looking at bog turtle habitat um, out in the, like, you know, an hour, hour and a half away from here. Um, and so I was a little surprised when I met you and heard about what you did. So what is the Nature Conservancy doing in Philadelphia? Okay, so Nature Conservancy, for those who don't know, is a leading conservation organization working around the world to protect ecologically important lands and waters for nature and people. And yes, many people have that notion that ecologically important lands and waters tend to be in national parks or pristine areas hours outside of cities. But in fact, um, there's a tremendous amount of really beautiful and exciting ecology all around us, and our cities just happen to be laying on top of the natural landscape. So what we're doing at Nature Conservancy is starting to do more research and explore those connections that um, we either currently have or could foster in better and more invigorating ways with that natural landscape around us. So we are working on things like um, urban forest canopy in cities and promoting trees and streams as sort of nature-based solutions for different issues that cities tend to face. So the urban forest canopy, for example, can help... um, help to reduce the amount of heat that cities tend to have. Um, They tend to be higher degrees in temperature than surrounding areas outside, but with a healthy forest canopy intact, you can bring the temperature down. So things like that is what we're really excited to get into, is where can nature-based solutions help people in cities. So good for people, good for nature, and there's a lot of things that we can participate in with all of the great groups that are already doing wonderful things around Philadelphia and other cities in the U.S. So that's a little bit of an introduction. It's a good introduction. All right. Do you guys do anything with aquatic ecosystems, like rivers and stuff in cities? Um, well, we're really at the beginning stages of the urban conservation program How long for have Nature you been Conservancy. Doing this? Um, months, actually. So, yeah, so very, very new. Um, we just formed a North American urban network, which consists of 13 cities around our North America region that we're piloting um, the first first urban conservation programs in Philadelphia. It happens to be one of them. So um, I imagine that, yes, we would absolutely be doing things along um, the Delaware and the Schuylkill rivers, um, but it remains to be seen. So it'll give me some more things to talk about in the months to come. <laughs> Good. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so my name is Len Albright. I'm a, an assistant professor of sociology at Northeastern University in Boston. But I am a longtime Philadelphian and uh, a West Philadelphia resident. So uh, my biggest passion is fish, and uh, more specifically, fish in cities. I'm a huge uh, striped bass fisherman, and I also like uh, shad and herring, all the migratory fish, all the fish that are kind of here one day and gone the next in in cities. So I guess I'll, I'll talk about Philadelphia as kind of a case study of the relationship between urbanization and and uh, aquatic life. So if you think about a city like Philadelphia, you know, Philadelphia really started going in the 17th century. So Philadelphia's been around for 400 years and has, you know, has had this remarkable transformation on the natural environment since then. I mean, if you places like South Philadelphia, 
dense urban environment that was that was all wetlands. I mean, that was all swamp. It was salt. It was basically salt marsh when the you know when the uh, in the summer and in the winter it was just kind of freshwater marsh. Three hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, we're just kind of building and building and building. We're putting more concrete and just basically kind of paving over paving over this this uh, this ecosystem. And then with that came impact on the, the different types of animals that lived in the water. What I'm most interested in, kind of knowledgeable about, is the fish species. You know, these are the particularly the anadromous fish. These are fish that spend their lives in saltwater, but then they migrate into freshwater to spawn every spring. So these are your striped bass, uh, different types of herring and shad. Um, eels, on the other hand, migrate the other direction. They spend their lives in freshwater, and then they migrate out of the freshwater systems to the uh, Sargasso Sea in the, in the in the Atlantic, and they spawn out in the ocean. Yeah. Um, that's catadromus? Catadromus, yeah, exactly. So, you know, as industrialization and urbanization is ramping up, there's changes in water that, that actually did have a major impact on the ability of these anadromous fish to come and migrate uh, up into the water to spawn. And some of the biggest barriers were oxygen barriers. So, you know, we, we can think about concrete dams as blocking, you know, fish are migrating. You know, think about a salmon, you know, it's migrating up and then a river and suddenly hits this dam and then it can't go any further. Another type of dam is an oxygen barrier, where when there's just uh, when there's a, a not enough dissolved oxygen in the water, the fish literally stop. They stop in place because they say to themselves, "If I migrate any more, any further up this river, I'm, I'm not going to be able to breathe. I'm going to die." So um, there was a serious oxygen barrier in the Delaware and in the Schuylkill that literally just prevented the fish from from migrating any further. You couldn't see it, but it was there. So you've got things like um, lack of sufficient oxygen for fish to make their way up the rivers, and at the same time, you've got with industrialization, you have all these different industries um, that are basically using the, these river systems as sinks. You know, it's, if you've got a paint factory, you're dumping, you're dumping paint into the river. Um, the most famous example is the Hudson River, which, um, you know, was in just dire, dire condition in the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, and and the, the story goes that there was a you know major paint factory. There's also the GE factory that put a lot of PCBs into the Hudson River. Still trying to clean that up. Um, but <clears throat> when the paint factory would you know paint cars blue, the river was blue. When it painted cars red, the river was red. And um, <clears throat> there's an amazing documentary about the the, the founding of the Hudson the, the Riverkeeper organization, which started on the Hudson is now since spread around the world. There's a riverkeeper on, on the Delaware River. It came out of uh, you know just just kind of seeing how devastated the Hudson was with all this pollution. And it was a, at the time, it was a group of striped bass fishermen who um, basically were like, we can't fish anymore. The fish, there's no fish here. What can we do about this? So, um, so you've got the lack of oxygen. You've got all different types of you know, poisons and chemicals and things. And just really made it a, an environment that wasn't hospitable for, for, for these fish t- to come in, to live, to spawn, um, to kind of pass through. But the exciting thing is that's changing. You know, with the Clean Water Act and different types of changes in how we manage either, you know, industrial output and also how we manage water systems in cities. We're seeing that there's, you know, adequate dissolved oxygen for fish to make these migrations. There's less pollutants in the water. There's this whole movement right now around, um, around, around de-damming rivers. There was just a, a dam was just taken down in Delaware last week. I think it was one of the first. And in the spring, they're going to have a blessing of the fish migration. When, like, they expect that the herring will be able to come and migrate up there now. Rivers like the Delaware, rivers like the Hudson, these are you know incredibly long stretches of river that are not dammed. But then you have rivers like the Susquehanna, which have tons of dams. Yeah. So the Conowingo sure. Dam is, has long been a controversial dam. 
the the Chesapeake Bay is like one of the one of the three primary nurseries for the striped bass on the Atlantic seaboard. The Delaware Bay, the Hudson, and the Chesapeake are the three like genetic stocks on the East Coast. And so the the Chesapeake Bay and all of its tributaries are these incredibly important nurseries for these fish. And the Susquehanna basically fish have these barriers that prevents them to kind of go much further. Sociologists study people, and uh, and I'm interested in fish. I kind of wear two hats in my job. One is I'm interested in, in cities. I'm interested in, in communities that we build, the different type of political, cultural, social uh, components of how we live, how we organize ourselves in, into these, into these uh, different communities. Then I'm also really interested in nature, and I'm interested, you know, I'm, I'm, I have this passion for fishing. So I kind of merged the two, and I said, okay, you know, h- how can we understand how nature and, and, and urban communities interrelate? How have the different ways that we've organized our communities impacted nature, and, and how can nature, how has historically and, and into the future, how can nature play a role in, in our lives in these kind of really dense urban environments? Um, and when you think about, you know, urbanization, I mean, I, I can't think of the statistics offhand, but I mean, we are rapidly, rapidly becoming a, a world in which the majority of the world's population of 7 billion people lives in cities. So, you know, we are... You know, and, and the old model of cities was to build out nature, right? It was the, you know, the modernist project, concrete, build it out, you know, block it. Army Corps of Engineers, you know, build the barriers, get it out. And um, and now we're realizing that that's, you know, there's there's some positives to that strategy. There's also some negatives. So there's a, a kind of a, a, a new emerging mindset of, you know, how, how do we think about building in harmony with nature? How do we draw nature into cities? How do we turn towards nature? And um, And you're seeing that in all different types of ways. And I, and I think part of it is, you know, things like climate change and, you know, we, we really have to start thinking about how our cities interact with these, these huge, huge natural systems. So, um, so within the field of sociology, there actually has been started to be some kind of crossover where, where sociologists are talking about nature. And so how I fit into that is what, what can talking about fish add to this conversation? You know, how can it help us make our communities more environmentally sustainable more culturally rich, more you know economically, um, you know resilient. Uh, all these things that we would that we think are good for our good for the places that we live. You know how can connections to nature and fish and, and aquatic ecosystems kind of go hand in hand in those ways? So I'm I'm most interested in um, in these uh, these migratory fish, the striped bass, um, bluefish, false albacore. What I like about them is this this here today gone tomorrow element. There's like something magic about that that I just love. So, like in a place like Philadelphia, these the striped bass are here for a month and a half, like May, early June, and then they're gone. So, you know, you could walk from West Philadelphia a mile down to the Schuylkill. You could catch a twenty or thirty or thirty pound striped bass. You know, and this is the same fish that in a month or two will be off. The, it'll it'll swim around Long Island, past Montauk, past Martha's Vineyard, around Cape Cod, and it'll spend the summer in Maine. And then when the water starts to get too cold in Maine, it'll it'll swim back and it'll and it'll head and it spends the winter off the coast of North Carolina. But it's so it's just like you can have this you can have this moment with this fish that's that's uh, you know in the middle of this amazing migration. So for me, it's it's about kind of connecting to this connecting to these these ancient ancient migration patterns that have been happening for you know millions and millions of years. There's times when just magic things happen. Like um, I was just talking to a friend who lives in Brooklyn. 2011, we organized this uh, a fishing competition in the spring called the Philadelphia Striped Bass Derby, and we we based it partly off of there's a similar striped bass derby in Martha's Vineyard, but there's also one in Brooklyn, 
and it happens every fall, usually in November. So they, they kind of intersect with the fish as the fish are migrating south. So this was like the first or second week of this November. Right by Greenpoint, you know, there's these like sanitary canals that go into Greenpoint into Brooklyn that are pretty nasty. I mean, a lot of these are like super fun sites. Um, the first, the Derby was a, is a two-day event. That Saturday, uh, a, a pod of striped bass had pinned a pod of, of Minhaden into, the, into this creek mouth in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. So it, it is like, this is something you'd see out in the middle of the ocean. And now this is like, you know, this isn't Greenpoint, this isn't Brooklyn. And you're watching, you know, hundreds of striped bass feed on these Minhaden, they're called pe- these peanut bunker. You know, and it's just like, that's their place. You know, this is, this is, this is their pattern. This is, this is happening, you know, uh, you know, I'm sure like two blocks from an American apparel or... So it's, it, it's, it's these kind of remarkable moments that, that are just, you know, it, it just makes you realize that these, these, these places that you're inhabiting, uh, there's all these systems that are going on that have, for one, have nothing to do with humans. And two, that are just barely, barely perceptible. And when you have these, these instances to, to kind of witness it, it's just so incredible. It's just... It's amazing. And for me, when you see it in, in an urban environment, it's that much more special because it's just, it's, it's the last thing you'd ever expect to see. And then you see it and you're like, it just, it also reminds you that we live in these natural places, like we're places that are dictated by natural laws. So I actually grew up, I grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey, which is like not a romantic landscape. This is not like I grew up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, or I grew up in the, you know, uh, the, the Pacific Northwest. I grew up fishing in a like a drainage pond, basically. You know that was that was my nature was a drainage pond, and uh, and I would catch bluegills and uh, sunnies and um, bullhead catfish. But I mean, to me, that was the world. I mean, that was that was nature. That was all the nature I needed, and uh, and that's something that stuck with me. You know, in thinking about looking for nature in these kind of uh, places that we normally wouldn't associate with nature. I mean, that comes right out of where I grew up. You know, I had like a, a quarter of a block of woods near my house that I would play in, and then I had these retention ponds where we'd fish, and and that was magic. That's where the ma- that's where magic was. It's just like where something that was beyond, you know, human lived. And so I was really active in fishing when I was a kid, and then I and then it kind of went away. I lived in a I lived in a variety of cities, and then I, and then I started getting interested in in things like graffiti and train hopping and all this stuff that started getting me into these like weird, kind of liminal weird. Sp- off the beaten path parts of cities that also tended to be near water. So it'd be like you'd be waiting to go freight hopping and you'd be looking, you'd be right next to the river. And it started getting me down into these places. It's like these weird mishmash of like um, some cattails and some rock, you know, all these kind of yeah. kind of weird weird spots. So I just started becoming more aware of these urban rivers and started fishing in them. You know, I started fishing in Chicago and I started fishing in Philadelphia and I started fishing in New York. And then at the same time I was learning more about uh, fishing in the ocean. And I started to connect these two things. I started, you know, re- realizing that these... That the, the first time I actually, I was, I was... This was maybe 10 years ago. I was walking down the Schuylkill River. And I saw a guy reel in what was probably about a 20-pound striped bass. And it just blew my mind. It totally blew my mind. I was like, what is... What? What? You know, I, like, what is that? That's insane. Where'd that come from? And I asked the guy, and, and he didn't really know much about them. He was like, oh, I don't know. They, you know, they live here and... But then I started researching it, and it was just like, oh, no, these fish are only here for, like, a little little while, and it's just, you know, really, really kind of blew my mind. And the more I started to learn about that, the more I got excited about it. And I started learning about the shad runs, and, um, you know, I've, I've caught shad right at the uh, right at the art museum in, in the springtime, and that's just amazing. Um, the same time that the that the shad fest happens in, uh, in Fishtown. So the book is called The Urban Fish, 
um, which is <laughs> goes right right along. What's with it the, about? Yeah. Man? <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about it. So uh, the urban fish is basically uh, it's a theory book that looks at this kind of relationship between humans and and uh, and nature in cities, using our relationships with fish to kind of critique the ways that we've been living. So it's um it uses a bunch of case story, <laughs> uh, a bunch of case studies. Striped bass in Philadelphia, herring on the in the on the New England coast, salmon in the Pacific Northwest, uh, a few kind of interesting fish uh, down in the California region. Um, but I basically it's it's part of, partly historical and it's also about some of the kind of innovative things that planners and designers are doing in cities to to kind of turn us towards water, which is something that's really happening. I mean, you're seeing this in cities around the world. You're you're definitely seeing them in cities on the East Coast. You know, in the investments that we're making and, and how we're thinking about urban space, we are thinking about ways to c- connect city residents to water and, and water systems. Whether it's um, in Providence, Rhode Island, you know, years ago they had basically paved over the Providence River. You know, you wouldn't have even have known it was there. And now they have done what's called spotlighting or sunlighting, where they've basically brought the river back to sunlight. They've taken the, the, the pavement away. You know, this is good for fish migration. It's good for if you're on your lunch break, now you can go and have lunch by a, by a cool river. We're building, uh, you know, um, things like rail trails and, and, and walking paths along rivers. We're building infrastructure for fishing and boating, which is happening all over the place. We're investing in educational programs, which are getting kids um, connected to nature. So this is all, this has been a major, major change in how we think about urban planning. In the last probably 20 or 30 years, but definitely in the last five or 10 years, we're seeing a lot more kind of infrastructure investment, programming money, philanthropies, nonprofits are all kind of getting involved in this. There's a there's a tradition in sociology called um, like where you like commodity chain, like where you follow a commodity. Mm. So people will basically write a book about the tomato, right? So it's like, okay, I, I go to my grocery store and I look at a tomato and I say, where did it come from? You follow it backwards and you tell the you tell the story of the, this thing. The same thing with fish. I mean, it's it's. You know, and that's something that I do in my book, The Urban Fish. I walk backwards. So I start by saying, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if I could walk down to the Schuylkill River, a mile from my house, catch a striped bass, bring it home, make it for dinner for friends, and, and not feel bad at all about it. You know, I mean, other than the ethical and all that, you know, of being an animal and stuff, but, like, not feel like there's going to be a health impact on, on my body. So then I have to walk backwards and say, okay, what's in this fish? Well, there's mercury in the fish. Where does the mercury come from? There's PCBs in the fish. Where does the PCBs come from? There's endocrine disruptors in the fish. Where does that come from? You know, and, and so then I say, okay, well, wow, if I want to be able to eat this fish, now I have to be an activist around air pollution. I have to be an activist around water management, so cool. you know, getting yeah. endocrine disruptors. You know, and this is about this relationship with my food, a food that I could access a mile from my house. And, and it, it leads you into all these kind of, um, this biography of this animal, basically, and, and, and all these different systems, and it connects you to them in a way that's real. I think there's something really, really powerful to that. And, and I think that the where food comes into it is that, you know, we all eat. You know, it's all something that we understand. And uh, and if, if you want to talk about, like, activating people to care about the environment, food is a great way to do it. It's accessible. It makes sense. It's easy to understand. If you say to someone, look, this food, you can eat this fish and it, it might make you sick. Now, we could do some different things and then we could eat this fish and it wouldn't make you sick. And that, that ends up being kind of the end of my book where I talk about, like, look, these huge pro- problems like things like the Anthropocene and climate change and global warming. It's like, how do we tackle this? And we're going to need all different types of strategies, but we're going to have to activate interest groups. Like, we have to get, we have to get people to care about the things that they love. 
because that's the only thing that's you know other than like like economics that's the only thing that's going to lead people to really change their behaviors in ways that will have any kind of impact so you know it's like so you activate skiers because you're saying hey skiers if you know if the weather changes you're not going to have snow anymore in your mountains so you should care about this so the skiers are activated and they're lobbying the government to put tighter regulations on fossil fuels and that's great and then you activate the fishermen who care about the fish sure. you have to do all of that you know because that's what will build the political will to to get the state and the market to to take chances to you know to try to try to make the change happen that could impact something that large scale When you get into cities, there's no dodging the reality of these being human use mm-hmm, spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're sort of entering into a new era of, of conservation, not just for nature conservancy, but I think for any type of conservation or environmental organization and having to recognize how many people are moving to cities and that we really are becoming more of an urbanized world that we need to stop and think about what are the origins of how we even defined environment in the first place is very different than what we're looking at now. So our definitions come from, you know, maybe even almost a hundred years ago from a very particular group of people who defined what wilderness actually is and what that means. And the reality now is that we've got millions and millions of people who that isn't the reality for them of what and how they define the environment. Um, So I loved what Len said about how his nature was a drainage pond, and was that any less valuable for him, or was that any less meaningful? It wasn't, and I think that that's such a great case in point that, um, you know, things like dandelions can be nature for certain groups of kids, or imagining how a small stand of three or four trees in a city can be a source of inspiration and play space for hundreds and hundreds of people over the course of a week where, you know, a tree in a boreal forest maybe is never seen by any human being. So I I really like that we're moving into this sort of almost modernization of conservation that says, yes, we still need to do the great work we've been doing in these more wilderness areas, right? It's not one or the other. It's saying we need, you know, we've built up, you know, 65 plus years of history of doing really great, meaningful conservation work, protecting last great places. That still needs to happen. And yet it's a whole new era of what about cities? And we need to understand that they too are part of the landscape, Right, a river doesn't know that it's in a city or out of a city. It moves through and thinks of the spaces as one continuum. The same with migratory birds, the same with fish species. And so we have an opportunity now to be able to try to reconcile the fragmentation that we have done um, with our design and our planning over many, many decades and go back and say, well, what can we do to enhance and to um, restore a lot of these spaces that are wonderful assets in our cities? So, yeah. You don't, ha- you don't have patches of a river that goes from its mouth to its source, and the only way yeah. it gets broken up in fragments is, is dams. Are you going to get a, a bear showing up in your forest fragment park? Probably not. You know, if you're in Portland, you can go down to, your, to the riverfront and see a sea lion, you know, because they're falling the salmon, mm-hmm. and that's amazing. Or, you know, you can get a 12-foot sturgeon. You know, that, that, that's just awesome. Like, you know, you get these giant animals. You know, manatees. There's a manatee up the Delaware River now. I mean, this summer, like, yeah. it, it went up past, past Philly. Like, that's awesome. I also think it's interesting considering that the aquatic systems tend to be less 
less visible. You know, like we're only interacting with the surface right. of it. Yeah. And everything is below. And so interesting that there is more attention and people are understanding. And so I often tend to think about how can we get more of that bringing those, you know, species up above or more interactive um, because unless you're fishing on it, how do you get more support and more excitement? I would say, hey, jump in with your mask and snorkel, but still, in this school, you're not going to see a whole lot. It's kind of murky. We should link, I will link, to the Fairmount Dam Fishway camera so you can Mm -hmm. see their videos. There's lots of of fishways. And and there's a lot of fish ladders and fishways around the country, around the world. I mean, I remember in uh, Anchorage, and granted, like, Anchorage is... (laughs) <laughs> you're really kind of stretching urban, but <laughs> go with it. Yeah. But I mean, you just go to like the was it Chesterfield um, Lagoon, and there's you can just watch salmon like coming up from the lagoon up this river. Like, it's, yeah, those are my favorite activities when I lived yeah. in Portland, Oregon, was to go look at the salmon spawning outside the city and the um, on the dams that they had out there in Columbia River. Did they have cameras? So, like, they, um, no, you, they just had fish um, like submerged um, glass windows. So it wasn't just camera. Oh, cool. You're standing and you're watching. And you're watching the you fish watching go by. You're watching come through, and there were maybe six to eight different windows, so you could follow. Like you, you could walk literally along the same pathway that they're following, oh, and watch neat. and see how much they were struggling and how their body shapes yeah. were changing. It was fabulous. So it was one of those rare occasions where you're getting to be submerged under water to watch that ecology. So if action. you're in a city where you can do that, check it do out. Do it. You must do it. It's fabulous. Yeah. yeah. I love it. If people are interested in supporting the Nature Conservancy's urban work, how should they do that? Um, you can go to nature.org and there'll be links there that you can find to learn more about our urban conservation work. And if you happen to be in the Philadelphia area, um, Pennsylvania chapter has its own website that you can find and we have in nature in cities page that you can go to. Ooh, I'll be sure to link to that. Yes, definitely link to is that. Is that a national nature and cities page or is it a PA? Um, it's a PA one, but um, other chapter, other state chapters will start to have that. Um, and then, okay. of course, you can always email me any questions you may have or thoughts or ideas on Philadelphia okay, at J-U-L-R-I-C-H at T-N-C dot org. I just want to mention also about um, subsistence fishing because I think it's in some ways an environmental justice yeah, issue go ahead. linked to this. So just making a note that a number of people, um, and I think there's been counts even up to thousands, thousands of people in cities fish on these rivers that are heavily polluted. Yes, there's been some improvement, but there's still tons of work to be done. And just recognizing that um, large amounts of community members use that as one of their major food sources yeah. on a regular basis. So it's not just a making nature nice for um, for people and for the nature itself, but also really an environmental justice issue of, you know, if people are using that as a food source, it's really a responsibility we have to make sure that, that those communities aren't eating something that's going to make them sick. All right, so hey, next episode. Repeat <laughs> <laughs> that to death. We might stop doing the next episode music. We're sorry for those. Of, if, you, if you want to hear more of the next episode music, write us a note at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Please also feel free to leave us a comment, leave us some feedback um, through iTunes or Stitcher. Uh, and if you do like what you're listening to, please make sure to rate us on those platforms too, on iTunes and Stitcher, so other people can find us and like us too. But next episode, um, we're going to double up on aquatics, uh, and we're going to hear about sturgeon, which aren't just caviar, 
they're these in absolutely enormous fish that are frankly some of the largest animals that you have in cities period if you count them the swimming right outside your city think underwater dinosaur or right through it think underwater dinosaur mm-hmm. exactly you walk it on the footbridge above one um, so we're psyched about that All right thanks catch fish every day I went to Dura Duty, right? And you're like, where the hell is this going? I went to Dura Duty, um, and I was in school at the time, as you know, and I was like, hey, I you know, went to tell them, I was in the line to tell them, I'm in school, I can't, you know, get sequestered, I'm going to have to be in. And the woman in front of me, she goes to the, the she's like, I can't do this, I got raccoons living in my roof! <laughs> and, and she's just like, and she's like, they're like, they're, it's like she's like, they're on my roof and they're so loud and they're making holes and and, like, and, then, and she got off, she got off of Georgia and, like, and I'm like, I'm in invertebrate zoology. <laughs>